How are you? Thanks for being with us. Let's be ready with our Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. The plan is to cover verses 14 through 23 this time to complete our studies in Philippians. Coming up next, the 17 periods of Bible history. More about that near the end of this recording. Listen, please, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 23. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Maybe I've mentioned this before. I still believe in our digital age that written thank you notes have great value. All through the New Testament, gratitude is a virtue. When you receive a benefit or gift from someone, good character compels you to say thanks. And that's what this is all about. Paul was able to spend time preaching, teaching, traveling in the Lord's work, partly because good people took on his needs, supplying his support, believing he was doing the Lord's work. Much of this passage is simply Paul saying, thank you. And this expression of gratitude includes words of exhortation and encouragement for the Christians at Philippi in keeping with the tone of this entire epistle. Paul had this ability to weave together gratitude and admonition. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. He is commending them for sharing with him in a time when he was in trouble. And in writing this, he is commending sharing for all of us. And it should be our practice when people help us to commend them, to express our warmth and gratitude, especially when their help comes to us when we are under pressure, when we're being opposed, when we have very pressing needs. There may be some tendency sometimes to receive help and forget about gratitude. Paul wasn't guilty of that. He was not cold, self-centered or ungrateful. He wasn't so self-centered that he just took help from people and never said anything. 
He was not an ungrateful taker. He was a grateful, humble recipient. The Apostle Paul didn't have that mentality that takes without giving appropriate gratitude. He was anxious to express his gratitude. He knew it was right, and he knew it would encourage his brethren to keep doing what they'd been doing, sharing with Christians in trouble. So he said things like this, according to the New King James, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared with me in my distress. Now, I want us to look closer into this and get focused on something he said. It was kind of you to share my trouble or distress. Slow down, read that again, and listen for something that you might miss. It was kind of you to share my trouble. It doesn't say you shared with me when I was in trouble. No, it was kind of you to share my trouble in the New International Version. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Here's what I want us to get. It's one thing to observe that someone is in trouble and to send help to them. That's one thing that's good. The Philippians' generosity was more than just sending help. They shared in his distress. I believe that speaks to their sympathy with Paul, which would include their prayers their concern, their heart was in this. They made Paul's struggles their own struggles. They were not just financial donators. They were people who cared. Someone said it wasn't just that they opened their pocketbooks. They opened their hearts. Have you ever been in a situation of distress, physically, financially, emotionally, or spiritually? and several people come to your aid. But it may seem that some really hurt with you and struggle with you at a level of intensity that you may not see in everybody. They struggle with you in prayer. Not all who help you may supply that depth of genuine sympathy. The saints at Philippi didn't just send a check if I can use that expression. They prayed, they thought about Paul, they inquired, they acted as they had opportunity repeatedly. The extent of their generosity was so impressive to Paul, he commended them and thanked them for their concern. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. You see what this is about? What this should mean to us today? What a great example for us. Let's go further. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. We're going to submit this verse to some simple analysis to help get from this verse all that's in it. Notice the phrase that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia. That phrase specifies a time. He's talking about the past, back when they first obeyed the gospel. That's a time marker. Paul is saying, from that time, when I left, this is very well rendered in the New International Version, 
in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel. At that time, and verse 16 will say, even after that, when Paul was in Thessalonica, the Christians in Philippi supported him. Paul, as part of his thank you, is remembering their sharing with him over a period of time. Listen to verses 14 through 16. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. One of the first things we ought to see here is what we've just been talking about, the depth or extent of their generosity. It would be one thing for the church at Philippi to support Paul while he was there with them. Beyond that, even in Thessalonica, they sent aid once and again for his necessities. So their giving to Paul was not self-centered. They were committed to the cause Paul was delivering to people. And not only did they give, they really cared. As I said before, it was more than just a check in the mail. Something else that can be learned from this passage is, and I remind you of our study last week about the apostolic pattern in verse 9, this established a right way to do this, support from church to the preacher. You can't argue against this pattern. You can't go wrong doing what is described here at church, sending support directly to the preacher. I realize there is a popular way of doing this that funnels the support through a sponsoring church or another agency. Not only is there no pattern for that in the New Testament, it is encumbered with a variety of issues having to do with the scope of an elder's work and the autonomy of a local church. We can be sure, however, that this is right. Support directly from the church to the preacher in the field. Two things can be learned from this. One, the main thing here, Paul's gratitude for the depth of their generosity that included sympathy. Two, we discover here a process that we know has apostolic approval. I move now to verse 17. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I touched on this earlier. When you express gratitude to someone and you repeat that gratitude, sometimes there may be some impression that the one giving out all this gratitude just wants more gifts. Paul wanted to make this very clear. His expressions of gratitude were sincerely offered, not an effort to get more out of them. If you have the New International Version, verse 17, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. His gratitude was perfectly sincere. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received 
from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What comes out of this verse is something we've talked about already in this chapter, contentment, satisfaction. Paul is saying, I'm okay. And furthermore, the gifts you sent me have an even higher purpose. The gifts you sent are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. If God is pleased, certainly all his people on earth who participate in this should be pleased. Verse 19, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, this is a magnificent promise. All need supplied. The God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who made man, the God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God that Paul was serving, the Philippians were serving, that God says to me, all need supplied. And that should strike us as a magnificent promise. Now, you know what I'm going to say next. I'm going to emphasize need. And I'm going to point out this promise is for those in Jesus Christ, for it is by him that the promise is fulfilled. And let me bring up the emphasis on need. Not all our wants, not all the luxuries we may covet, not what would be necessary to look good in the eyes of your neighbor. Need, needs. God is talking about needs through Paul here. And this promise is made to Christians, those in Christ. The assurance of this promise can be embraced as you are engaged in the activity of daily faith in Christ. Promises in the Bible are made to people. We are obligated to determine from the text who those people are what those people do to be recipients of that grace. Adding now verse 20, now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to read now verses 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I can hear Paul thinking and saying, don't leave anyone out. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Those with me greet you and all the saints. Evidence of the power of the gospel is here. There were now saints in Caesar's household. Paul had been preaching. People had been obeying. And all of the good flows from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wrap-ups from this section. It is significant that Paul turned down money from other churches out of fear that his enemies might twist the facts and accuse him, and that it would hinder his work. References made to that in 1 Corinthians. 
That shows wisdom and sacrifice and grace on the part of Paul. There is the right for a preacher to be supported, but Paul didn't just go around and make demands and assert that right in every case. He trusted the Philippians. He expected nothing from them but good thoughts and attitudes. And this, of course, is how we ought to be. Back to contentment, which is a theme in this last chapter. I found this in one of the commentaries I consult. Paul was content because he could see his life from God's point of view. He focused on what he was supposed to do, not what he felt he should have. Paul had his priorities straight, and he was grateful for everything God had given him. Paul had detached himself from the non-essentials so that he could concentrate on the eternal. Often, the desire for more or better possessions is really a longing to fill an empty place in one's life. To what are you drawn when you feel empty inside? How can you find true contentment? The answer lies in your perspective, your priorities, and your source of power. That's from the Life Application Bible Commentary, written by Bruce Barton and others. Now I want to do this. I've made a list of some of the things we've learned from Philippians. Ten things we can learn from Philippians. And there is no suggestion as I go through the list that these are the only things we can learn from the epistle. I've selected ten things hoping that together these will bring to our memory the high value of this part of the New Testament. In chapter 1, verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This is something we talk about a lot in sermons and Bible classes. I pray we don't just talk about it and study it and read about it. Growth. We all believe it is necessary. We never disagree when preachers and Bible teachers talk about spiritual growth. We pray that we might grow. We try to help others grow. But the core challenge for each of us is, are we actually growing in our daily relationship with the Lord? Love is not something you learn about and then you acquire in some sort of a singular transaction and then just leave it. Love that we embrace by the activity of our faith in Christ is designed for growth, increase, abounding more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So three things are connected in this verse, love, knowledge, and discernment. And those components of our character need to be progressing and improving day by day. Growth, as described here and in other places, cannot just be something we study and read about and talk about. It is to be pursued and done and accomplished in the daily heart and behavior of us as disciples of Christ. You're with me about that, aren't you?
in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Bad things happen to Paul, but he minimized his personal suffering because the gospel was being advanced. The main thing for Paul was not to have pleasant and prosperous circumstances every day. The main thing for Paul was to advance the cause of the gospel, for sinners to hear about salvation in Christ. That's one of the highest challenges we face as Christians. To be able to discount the earthly trouble we're going through because the gospel is being preached, good is being done, God is being exalted, Christ is being glorified. There's a healthy attitude that is at the core of reaching other people, and it's referred to here. Chapter 1, verse 21. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When we studied this a few weeks ago, I believe I said to us that we have a morbid view of death, usually. We may have an exaggerated fear of it. Christians know no matter what takes us to death and no matter the mystery of the event, God will take care of us in such a way that it is gain. And the promised resurrection from the dead to glory for the people of Christ is something we ought to dwell on with the focus of faith and hope. So we can mature in our faith to the point that we consider death as gain. Chapter 1, verse 27, Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We cannot just sit here on earth and think about heaven. We cannot just idly wait for the second coming in some passive sense. You have to get up every day, take hold of your responsibilities, and be certain that your manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We ought to be awakened and admonished by these powerful statements in the book of Philippians. I'm now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In terms of attitude, 
This is the centerpiece of Philippians. I believe it was in an earlier class that I said in reply to a good comment that in terms of attitude, this is the centerpiece of the epistle. All that is required of us written in Philippians must be done from this kind of attitude. This heart of unselfish humility, perfectly illustrated by Christ, this ought to be our settled attitude toward people rather than a limited self-centered focus. Paul says, no rivalry, no conceit, but such humility that we count others more significant than ourselves. And Christ is our example in all of this. I'm not going to read it in its entirety right now. But in making this list of the practical value in the Philippians study, I want to take note with you of chapter 2, 19 through 30. The attitude that we've just read about in Philippians 2, 1 through 5 is illustrated later in the chapter by two men who were servants of Christ who cared, who gave, who sacrificed, who had this attitude to the spiritual benefit of those with whom they came in contact. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Really, you have in Philippians chapter 2 four good examples. Christ, supremely so. Paul, who was the writer. Timothy and Epaphroditus. In chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to you. When the preacher starts sounding like a broken record, when he says a lot of the same things over and over again, and when you're tempted to say, I've heard that already, please remember this. In Philippians 3 and verse 1, there is value in repetition. And there's something I'm going to repeat that you've heard before now as I move to chapter 3, verse 9. Philippians 3 and verse 9. Paul talks about being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, Paul said, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is simple. Though in the denominational world, people stumble all over this. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Now, concerning that statement, there is no question because it's written here. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. The tricky part for many people today is an incomplete definition of faith in Christ. What many immediately think of is faith alone, where you believe something and you don't do anything, no baptism, for example. The way to navigate this misunderstanding is read everything the New Testament writers said about what constitutes faith. Faith finds its existence in obedience. For instance, in the book of Acts, those who believed in Christ were baptized. But then after baptism, what? 
Their belief in Christ led them to be baptized, and then after baptism, what? Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So it's not complicated, our response to God. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ, and the Bible tells us faith discovers its existence in obedience. This is why you hear me talk all the time about the activity of faith in Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 6, please. Chapter 4 and verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. If you were here when we studied this, you may recall my repeated disclaimer that it is easy for me to stand up here or sit here and speak to the camera and lecture us about anxiety. The challenge in stress management comes out in the daily grind of life and struggle and temptation. Don't focus on how you feel about your circumstances. Focus on what you're supposed to do before God. And this is part of that. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4 and verse 13. You'll recognize this. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context is Paul's courageous strength by which he learned contentment. Christ strengthened him. And remember, don't let anyone put a period after the first part of that verse. It is not, I can do all things, period. It is, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He strengthens his people to do everything that is good and right in his sight. All right, that completes our study in Philippians. Let me tell you what is planned for the next biweekly studies now that Philippians is finished. The Bible is sometimes put into 17 time periods, a 17-period timeline. That's what I want to do with you as we go forward in these bi-weekly studies, Sunday and Wednesday. They're posted before that. If you have not found the worksheets, just let me know. The first class will be September 13. It will be uploaded at least a day before September 13. It's going to be about the 17 periods of Bible history. Thank you for being with us. Grace and peace. And rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice.